please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Psalms. We're going to spend uh, this Sunday morning and uh, divert a little bit from our uh, ongoing series on ministry in the church. We'll be looking in the 138th Psalm, Psalm 138, and considering what it looks like to have the heart of a redeemed worshiper. What does it look like to be someone whom God has delivered? What are the desires? What are the ways of thinking that are possessed by someone who has been protected and preserved by God and wants to worship him for it? This is what we all are, is it not? If we're Christians, if we've been saved by Jesus Christ, we are those who have been redeemed and preserved, not in the exact way described here, but in one that is even more significant. We want to worship him. We're here to do that this morning. And uh, this psalm shows us the kind of heart that we should cultivate and emulate if we're going to respond rightly to those things. Psalm 138, we'll read the whole psalm, verses 1 through 8. Psalm of David. I will give, give you thanks with all my heart. I will sing praises to you before the gods. I will bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your loving kindness and your truth. For you have magnified your word according to all your name. On the day I called, you answered me. You made me bold with strength in my soul. All the kings of the earth will give thanks to you, O Lord, when they have heard the words of your mouth. And they will sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. For though the Lord is exalted, yet he regards the lowly. But the haughty, he knows from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you will revive me. You will stretch forth your hand against the wrath of my enemies. And your right hand will save me. The Lord will accomplish what concerns me. Your loving kindness, O Lord, is everlasting. Do not forsake the works of your hands. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? To get a window into the heart of the psalmist. You really have here not just the outward manifestation of what he does and what he wants to do in regard to worship and response to God and the God who is his Savior and his deliverer, the one who has strengthened him and given him help in the day of trouble, but you get a peek on the inside. Well, you see what he wants. You see what he loves. And as we go about our lives, certainly we have our own desires. We have our own wishes. We have the things that we long for, the things that we want, things that dictate the decisions that we make daily and even moment by moment. And so it's helpful for us to come to this and to be recalibrated and to say, what is it that we should want to do at the core of our being if we belong to a God who has rescued us? If we belong to a God who we should worship in response to all that he has done for us and all that he has revealed himself to be. This is an appropriate time to consider this and one of the reasons why this psalm uh, is one that I'm bringing before you this morning because it is a song about thanksgiving. It is a song about giving God thanks and praise, about confessing his name in light of what God has done, in response to what God has done. We of all people, as those who belong to Jesus Christ, have more to be thankful for than anyone else. All of us have things for which we should be thankful as God's creatures. God has given us food. He's given us clothing. He's given us every good thing. He's given us family and joy. And he's given us the ability to uh, enjoy the things that he has provided for us. And yet, of course, those who belong to God have a hope that transcends all of those things. That really isn't even, as the scripture says, worthy to be compared to what goes on in this world. So we of all people ought to be ready and able to give thanks. And this is a psalm that tunes our heart for that very thing. It helps us to see what we should cultivate in our own hearts for responding to God with thanksgiving and with a heart of praise that takes place, as we'll see, not only on the inside, but also 
in front of others and in front of the watching world. What we're going to find in this psalm is that a redeemed heart wants to thank God and to praise him for his greatness and for others to do the same. A redeemed heart wants to thank God and to praise him for his greatness and for others to do the same. This was the heart behind the psalmist, behind David as he is writing this. He wants to express God's greatness. He wants to extol him. He wants to exalt him. He wants to lift him up and to praise him. But he's not content with that alone. And he wants other people to know about God's greatness. And he wants other people to express that along with him. But we'll see that second part more as we work our way through the psalm. And we're going to begin by looking at his own expression of this. And we start in the first six verses of the psalm by considering this first part of his heart, which is an eagerness for the Lord to be praised. An eagerness for the Lord to be praised. He says, I will give you thanks with all my heart. I will sing praises to you before the gods. I will bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name. Do you see all of the things that he says that he is going to do? And this isn't just a promise that he is going to carry out later on, although that is there. But it expresses what's already going on in his heart, this desire that he has. He has an eagerness for the Lord to be praised, first of all, by personal confession of the Lord's greatness. Personal confession. You see this here in verses 1 and 2. I will, I will, I will. And there is a lot to be said uh, for some of the way that people talk in our day. Uh, pushing back against some of the me-centeredness of the kinds of worship, so-called, and praise that there is out there today. Too many songs of praise are all about how God makes us feel and about what we are going to do. And very little in some of those songs is about God at all. But here there is a commitment. There is an expression of what's going on in response to who God actually is. Psalm 138 is not short on the attributes of God or on the works of God. And yet there is here then stated a response of praise on the part of the psalmist saying, I am going to do this because this is the appropriate response to who you have revealed yourself to be, both in your word and your truth and in your action and your activities toward me. And so he himself personally begins to confess the Lord's greatness. That is the idea here behind the word. It says, I will give you thanks with all my heart. The word fundamentally means to acknowledge something. This word for thanks. It means to acknowledge something. Uh, sometimes on the one side it refers to admitting something or confessing. When you have to, for example, acknowledge that you've done something wrong. We would say uh, that I am admitting this or even that I'm conceding your point. I'm admitting that I was incorrect or even I'm admitting that I did something wrong. Um, but at other times, it was connected to the idea as here of thanksgiving. Because you're acknowledging what God has done. You're acknowledging that he has done something for you and you're expressing that to him. Isn't this what gratitude and thankfulness and thanksgiving is isn't this what it is all about? It's about actually saying and acknowledging, you have done this, you have done this for me, I've benefited from this, and I'm going to acknowledge that. I'm going to point that out, and I'm going to thank you for that. Now, a lot of the times, this word was, in fact, connected with the biblical uh, practice of the thank offering. The thank offering. And one writer uh, points out well that uh, in Psalm 50, for example, uh, there is the, the thank offering described to describe the kind of offerings that God wanted because Israel may have otherwise uh, brought the other kinds of offerings thinking that God would somehow respond to them with uh, giving them something back for their worship. But when it comes to thanksgiving, there's a certain type of uh, intrinsic purity to this where when you're thanking God for something, you're acknowledging what he has already done. 
There's a sense in which there's no strings attached to thanksgiving. You're telling someone, you have done these things. I'm confessing that you already have done this. And I'm not trying to pay you to get something back in return. This is what we ought to do. Too many times our prayers and our going before God uh, have strings attached to them. You know, I'm going to come and pray right now because that's right, I want something. And I need to make sure that I go and pray in light of that thing. And it might even be that we use Thanksgiving kind of as the veneer when we go to God to cover over our desire that he already knows about, of course, but to try to hide the fact that really we just want something out of God. But if we're going to worship God rightly, we need to have moments and times where we are simply thanking him for what he has done. We are acknowledging who he is. We're acknowledging what he has done for us. And we're not just grateful but we express this about him and to him this is why he says i will give you thanks with all my heart i will sing praises to you before the gods i will bow down toward your holy temple you see here that this is all very directional it is going toward the lord toward yahweh toward the god of israel This is going toward him. It's not just where he sits around as people do today and feels gratitude. Or where he goes around the table and expresses gratitude. And David, you know, you can picture him with his his family going around on a certain thing and just saying, you know, God does this and God does that. And, you know, I'm so thankful that we have this place to eat. And I'm so thankful that we have this palace. And I'm so thankful that I'm here today. But to think that David would do that and then never actually turn upwards and speak these things to God is a strange concept. And yet very often this is the way that we think about gratitude and thankfulness just as some type of character trait or activity that we do without regard to the one who has given us the things in the first place. So instead of simply being grateful, we ought to follow David's pattern here and say, I'm going to do these things toward God. I'm going to praise you. I'm going to thank you. I'm going to bow down. You'll notice here his personal confession consists, first of all, of a confession of the Lord above all the gods of Yahweh, above all the gods. He says, I will give thanks to you with all my heart. I will sing praises to you before the gods. Now, you see this, you might do a little bit of a double take. Are you saying David was some type of a polytheist? Not, of course, that he would worship them, but that he believed in them. And, of course, the answer is no. He is not saying that I am singing praises to you while other real gods actually watch on or are there present. David is the one who understands that these idols are nothing. He understands that there is only one true God among the other authors of Scripture. They all understand that there is no such thing as a real other God. And yet there were many other so-called gods that the nations worshipped. The nations had their own gods that they would set against the Lord, against Yahweh, against the one true God. And what David is saying here is um, these fake gods, these idols or these invisible so-called spirits that are not actually uh, existing. I am going to sing praises to you and I am going to tell them basically bring it on. I am doing this in their face and defying them. To do anything about it. And I'm very confident that I won't feel the repercussions of this because they don't exist. This is like Elijah on Mount Carmel going against the prophets of Baal. And what did he say? They're jumping around the the altar and they're trying to bring down fire upon the altar and they're doing all these crazy things. And what does Elijah do? He starts to mock them. You know, hey, why don't you cry out to him? He's a God after all. Uh, Maybe, you know, maybe he's gone somewhere on a journey. Maybe he is, uh, maybe he's busy. He's occupied. Just keep trying. Maybe he'll come back. Maybe he'll listen. And of course he knows it's never going to happen. Why? Because Baal isn't real. And yet people act as if he is. And that's what's going on here. I'll sing praises to you before the gods. I am going to do this. And I don't care if even the supposedly most powerful beings are watching. I am going to sing praise to you. And you are the one who is going to get the credit. You are the one who is going to be on display. And this is a little bit like showing up 
at a college campus wearing the team apparel of the rival school and just flaunting it right in their face. Except in that case, you might worry because they have actual fans who can take you down. Although I suppose that uh, the prophets and followers of these false gods could do the same thing. But in David's case here, he is doing this boldly and he's saying, I am going to worship the Lord God and I don't care what other religions there are out there. I don't care what other people think about my God. I don't care what other people think about how the world came to be. I don't care about that. I am going to praise him in the sight of anyone and everyone. And I'm going to, in a certain sense, flaunt that. Why does he do this? Well, because he has this on the inside. You notice at the beginning of verse 1, I will give you thanks with all my heart, with all all my heart. This speaks of his enthusiasm. There is a focus to this. He is enthusiastic about it. His heart, his whole inner man is devoted to this one true God. He is not as James refers to the double-minded man who is unstable in all his ways. He is devoted to this one God and he is eager to praise him. I wonder if we share the same attitude when we show up. When we come to sing praises to God, as you're singing, even just now, a few moments ago, what is this like? Are you eager to sing praise to God? Are you doing this enthusiastically? You say, well, that's not really the kind of music that gets me pumped up. Well, but is it the kind of truths that you know about what God has done for you, that you bring to church with you, that get you pumped up? Do those captivate your heart? Do you come eager to give thanks to God and praise to him? with others, in front of others, with all your heart because you love what he's done for you. That's what this is about. We should be eager to give God thanks with all of our heart because this is what is on the inside. He rejects these other gods. He is dedicated to the Lord with all his heart. He says he's going to bow down and the kind of worship that he gives to God is not some kind of brazen, careless way of approaching God, but rather it is with humility. He says, I will bow down toward your holy temple, toward your holy temple. Now, you might have a question here about this. After all, this is a psalm of David. The temple, uh, as such, had not yet been built at the time of David's death. So what is going on here? Well, sometimes this word refers, although it does uh, generally refer to the temple, in the Old Testament, sometimes it refers simply to a palace, uh, which could be speaking of God's house, more generally speaking. Uh, it could also be that there is an anticipation in David's mind of one day doing this uh, when the temple is built. After all, he's the one who made the plans when, uh, when his son Solomon uh, was to go on to build them. And it could be that he is just simply using this language of the house to refer to the tabernacle, which was already there at the time. Whatever the case may be, the temple in this case is serving basically as kind of a stand-in for God himself. He is making his uh, humility known toward God. He is worshiping God. His thoughts are toward him. His heart then is submitting toward him and humble toward him. And so all of his worship is aimed toward this one God. This God has his whole heart. He is his sole object of worship before any other possible objects of worship, and he submits to this one true God completely. He will bow down before his holy temple. This is what David was eager to do. He confesses and gives thanks to the Lord above all the gods, and he does so with all of his heart. Now, he goes on in verse 2, uh, in making this personal confession of God's greatness. He doesn't just talk about the way he's going to express that, but he also gives some very specific things about God that make him eager to do this thing. They are the subject of his praise, namely God's greatness in his character and in his word. God's greatness in his character and in his word. He says, I will give thanks to your name. I will give thanks to your name. And if you have 
read your Bible, uh, your Old Testament in particular, you will understand that this is the way that we, that God's, really God's entire character, his attribute is referred to very often. It's all summed up in the idea of his name. Basically, this is all that God is. His name is who he is. It's what he's like. It's all that he is. And uh, when he gives thanks to God's name, he is, in effect, giving thanks to God. But he is giving thanks to God, uh, understanding all that is true about him. And understanding all that he is like and all that he does. All of his attributes. All of his actions. He gives reasons why this God is worthy of praise. Why will I give thanks to your name? For your loving kindness and your truth. I will give you thanks for these things. This loving kindness, you know the word. Loving kindness, steadfast love, loyal love. Uh, it is the word hased. It, it has to do with the fact that God sets his love upon someone and it, he sticks it there. It stays there and he is devoted to them. And he, he takes care of them. He is committed to them. He has this ongoing faithfulness and at the same time, not only is that the way he deals with his people, but also according to it says... His truth, which has to do with his faithfulness and reliability, his trustworthiness. Uh, perhaps a better way to understand this in this context would be uh, the sense of his truthfulness. His truthfulness. The fact that God is utterly reliable. It is utterly reliable. He makes promises and he makes those promises come true. His word never fails. And that's exactly what he goes on to say in verse 2 at the end. He says, for you have magnified your word according to all your name. You have magnified your word or your sayings, your utterances. You have magnified the things that you have said, including your promises. And you have exalted them, how high? According to all your name. What does that mean? Well, we just talked about that. His name refers to, again, all that he is. And he has taken his words his word, and he has placed that and exalted it according to that standard. Now think about that for a minute. Is this the way people view the word of God today? Do people view what you have in the Bible on par with what they say you should view God as? Very often, sadly, what you will find is people who think that it is somehow idolatry or somehow getting disproportionate to view God's word as highly as we would view God. But what is God's word but the very words that come out of his mouth that are his utterances. And the text itself says it's not us who are magnifying his word as highly as God. It's God himself doing this. It's impossible to separate God's word once it has been revealed from God himself. And that's not to say that God's words are God and that that's all he is. But we don't do justice to God by reducing our view of God's word to somehow exalt him by way of contrast. God has exalted his word. He has magnified it according to all his name. It's very difficult to speak too highly of God's word unless you at the same time somehow speak lowly of God himself. Which, of course, would be a violation, a violation of what God's word says in the first place. So God has exalted his word. We should view it in the same way. And so he praises him for his loving kindness and for his truth. God's word is filled with truth. It is reliable. And he says this is this magnificent word that God has magnified. He has made it large. He has made it great. God has done this and we should view it the same way. David praises God for these things. But he also praises him for his help. God's answer to a cry for help. Verse 3. His answer to a cry for help. On the day I called, you answered me. You answered me. You ever been trying to get help from someone and you call them on the phone and they just won't pick up? You know, how many times have you ever called someone? What's the most that you've ever done that? Three, four, five times. You need to answer. You need to answer. You need to answer. I need help. Or maybe I just need, you know, your order. 
for the drive-through line and I'm getting closer and closer to the window. But there's a desperation that when you need help, please answer me. Help me out. And this is what he did. On the day I called, you answered me. God didn't just neglect when David cried out. He didn't just leave him in a lurch. He answered him. And implicitly, he said, yes. And what did he do? You made me bold with strength in my soul. You made me bold with strength in my soul. What was that the exact answer to? Well, it's very difficult to say exactly from this context. He may have uh, received the help that he needed in order to carry out something in battle, something to protect him against his enemies. Uh, In some way or another, maybe he was going to sin and he was was delivered from that. Whatever the case may be, God gave him something that he could not otherwise have. God strengthened him. God heard his cry for help. And this is the same God that we serve today. When we are in need, we cry out to him, and he can do whatever he desires for us. Things that may seem very difficult, where our only resort is to God, he is able to do, and we should cry out to him. What David says here is not just a statement about what he did, what God did for him. It's a statement that tells us that we should be following the same kinds of practice. When we are in trouble, when we have needs, when we don't know what to do, we should call out to the Lord. Because we have here an example of the fact that God listens and God answers and he is able to help us in our time of need. David wants to praise God with all his heart. He wants to do so boldly and even defiantly. But that's not enough for him. He's not satisfied with that. And he's not satisfied that it would come from him alone. How else does he want God to be praised? He is eager for the Lord to be praised, certainly by personal confession. By personal confession. But he also wants to see worldwide confession of the Lord's glory. He wants God to be praised by worldwide confession of the Lord's glory. And it begins with seeing his greatness confessed by earthly kings. Verse 4, his greatness confessed by earthly kings. All the kings of the earth will give thanks to you, O Lord, when they have heard the words of your mouth. All the kings of the earth will give thanks to you. Verse 1, he says, I will give thanks to you with all my heart. Now verse 4, he says, there's another group that's going to give thanks to you. Same underlying word here as well. And he says it's not just going to be a few other people either. All the kings of the earth are going to do this. This, by the way, is the first time he directly addresses God by name or title in this psalm. He has just been speaking to him. But now he refers to exactly who this God is. You, O Lord, O Yahweh, O Israel's God, the one true God who has made himself known specifically to Israel as we have in the pages of Holy Scripture. And this is the God that stands above all the so-called gods of all the earth and proved it in many, many different ways throughout biblical history. He says the kings of the earth are going to do this. They're going to give thanks to you, O Lord, because or when they have heard the words of of your mouth. There is something going on here. The kings of the earth are, are going to hear these words. Now, what's interesting is that you have uh, places like Psalm 2, where the kings of the earth take their stand against the Lord and against his anointed. It's not as if the kings of the earth never, any of them, heard any truth from God before. In fact, some of the kings of the earth rejected that very truth. They, they knew what the scripture said about various things, and they said, I don't care, starting most of all with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, in the book of Exodus. They didn't, he didn't care. He rejected what God said. So it's not so much about the fact that as soon as those words come into their ears, then they're going to do this. But David is picturing a time when the message is going to get through to them. They're going to hear the words of your mouth. This is not just speaking about the audio. You understand the difference between just hearing something with your ears and actually grasping it. Uh, Did you hear what I said? Well, yes, of course you heard what I said, but did you hear it? Did you understand? Were you listening? Did it get through? That's the idea here. When they have heard the words of your mouth and when they grasp them, 
Then the kings of the earth are going to do this. This uh, may, in fact, happen chronologically or at least in history in conjunction with uh, their recognition of the servant of the Lord. In either case, a similar concept is on display in Isaiah 52, the last few verses, starting in verse 13. It says, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. This was the message that the Apostle Paul is trying to spread when he is taking the gospel to new places. But it is a message that will reach the kings, even the kings of the earth. And one day the rebellion that takes place against God in the heights of government all over the world and has done so for generations, really since the dawn of time, um, this is going to change. And one day the kings of the earth will change their tune, literally. They will begin to sing something different. They will sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. Uh, there's an uh, uh, international competition going on right now. Some of you know about, some of you care about, some of you could not care less about. The World Cup is taking place. Um, and it's one of those international competitions where the, the players, they sing their national anthem beforehand. And, and you know, there is a, there, there's a national kind of identity here. And this is their tune that goes with their country. You know, this is, this is where they come from. And, and uh, they, uh, they sing with gusto. And, you know, this, this is what they're all about. Can you imagine a day when they all stand, maybe not playing soccer, but nonetheless, the, the people representing their country and they're singing songs about the Lord. They're singing songs of worship. They're, they're singing the ways of the Lord. They're saying God does this and God does that. They're not singing about some event in their country's history as the primary thing. What they're singing about is what God is like, who he is, what they've done. This is not just reluctant submission. This is a transformation that's brought about by the fact not only that God is merciful, but that his glory is going to be so obviously compelling and overwhelming that this will be the natural response. David doesn't give a date or a time, but he certainly wishes this will take place, and he is expressing confidence here that one day it will. They will sing of the ways of the Lord. Why? Verse 5, for great is the glory of the Lord. Of course. How could they not sing about him? Great is the glory of the Lord. This is why he will be sung about. Because like so many things that we sing about and uh, things that we might even boast about, God all the more is glorious. And this is displayed, David wants us to understand, in a particular way that God deals with people. His greatness uh, is not just going to be confessed by earthly kings, but his greatness is displayed in his regard for the lowly. This is very interesting and somewhat surprising that it would come here. His greatness displayed in his regard for the lowly. Uh, verse 6, for though the Lord is exalted, yet he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. So he is exalted. This simply means that he is high up. And sometimes, in fact, this word can take the idea of haughtiness uh, that's condemned at the end of verse 6. Uh, but that's when someone makes themselves high and exalted and they shouldn't be. This is part of the problem with pride, isn't it? is that we are not supposed to be the ones who are exalted. God is, and we exalt ourselves rather than him. But for God to be exalted is appropriate. This is simply who he is. It's what he is. He is high and exalted. And yet, he regards the lowly. He regards the lowly. What does this mean exactly? He regards them. Uh, the word, let me just give you a few ways this word is used. It refers to um, the idea that someone would see perceive, uh, to know, to look at, to consider, to become acquainted with. 
or to view or even to understand. Uh, what does it mean if someone won't even give you the time of day? What does that mean? It means you try to talk to them and they, I mean, what's the expression? They won't even tell you what time it is. You know, hey, will you tell me what time it is? Just, you know, go get a watch. That's what time it is. Time to get a watch. Okay, this is, they, they won't even give you the time of the day. They won't even talk to you about anything, the smallest thing. Um, in contrast to that is this idea of regarding someone. You're willing to give them your attention. You're willing to be aware of them. You notice them. You watch them. You see what they're doing. Why? Because you actually care about them. This is what God is like. God regards the lowly. God regards the lowly. This is in direct contrast to the idea of being very high up and exalted. God is as high as you can be, and yet he regards the lowly. Now, what sense does he mean this? He regards the lowly. Does this mean that God favors poor and downtrodden people over rich and successful people? Well, sometimes he does, and in some ways. This is not saying that the one who is positionally not in a high rank or high regard in society's sight, that that person is the one that God looks to. And so basically any kind of wealth or status or prestige is like a spiritual hot potato that you have to get rid of. And the more that you have that, the more you're in danger of God overlooking you. And really it's just a race to the bottom to where you get rid of all your money, all your status, all your friends, and you have nothing left circumstantially except God. That's one way to take this, but that's not what David is saying. I mean, here is David, who is the king. And he had a position even before he was the king. He was in the, uh, the king's court. He was not a nobody. And yet God viewed him as a man after God's own heart. So uh, we can't take it as that. It's not about the circumstances per se. But when someone is in a rough circumstance, when someone is brought low and the world doesn't care about them, that doesn't mean anything with regard to how God views them. And even more than that, what he's talking about when it comes to the lowly is in contrast to the third line in verse 6 where he says that he rejects the haughty, the arrogant, the self-important, self-exalting one. This helps us to understand what he's referring to by way of someone being lowly. What this refers to is humility of attitude and soul and mind and heart. It's the humility of the inner man. Isaiah 66 gives us a contrast that's similar to this, verses 1 and 2. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me? And where's a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things. Thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. Isaiah 57, 15. For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. I dwell on a high and holy place and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. These are God's two homes, if you will, and they're not even really two separate homes. He dwells in a high and holy place and with the contrite and lowly of spirit. Is it any wonder then that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Of course, this is exactly in keeping with what was already established in the Old Testament. God looks at people who are humble over their sin. They're humble in their posture before God. They're humble in their position before God, and they don't exalt themselves against him, but instead they submit to him. They recognize their place before him. And he says, that's the kind of person that gets my attention. That's the kind of person that I regard. This is very unusual for someone who is exalted to have regard for the lowly. Usually, the people who are exalted in our society try to protect that by not associating with the little people, usually. Sometimes they recognize it's to their benefit societally not to do that. Sometimes they're well-liked and they are genuinely uh, kind and humble people. But this is not the typical way that people who are exalted treat people who are not. 
but yet God does this. And he does this because not only is he able to, he doesn't need anything from us, but this is his benevolent character. He looks upon people and he is merciful. He looks out to give us something and to be gracious toward us. So he is gracious. He has regard for the lowly. This is in contrast to his rejection of the proud. The rejection of the proud is displayed here at the end of verse 6. The haughty he knows from afar. Um, This idea, haughtiness, is of arrogance and pride. It's not somebody who is truly high up, although they might be in a position that is important, or they might be highly regarded, or they might be rich, or they they might be accomplished. But whether they actually are or not is not really the issue. It's whether they think of themselves in certain ways. Are they self-exalting? Are they self-important? Are they high and exalted in their own mind? I'm better than everyone. I'm better than that person. I'm smarter than that person. I'm more accomplished than that person. I, I would do better than that person except for all the things that have worked against me in life to, you know, to make it where they have unfair advantages. Whatever it might be, they are high and exalted in their own minds, but not just in the sight of other people, but more importantly, they're high and exalted in their own minds in their relationship and their attitude before God. And that's what their haughtiness is first and foremost about. It is not against others, first and foremost. It's against their creator. And they are fundamentally self-sufficient, whether because of their achievements, their appearance, their social status, their intelligence, their wealth, their health, even their citizenship and their culture. They think they're better than other people. They think they've made it. They're good enough. And so they are self-sufficient. They're haughty before God If you find yourself in this position, this kind of attitude, then uh, this is the kind of exact person that God does not look with favor upon. You're the kind of person that needs to be saved. A lot of times we think because we are well accomplished and we're well off and we do things, we've done a good job and we have advanced through the ranks and we're not like the people who have these, you know, these kinds of problems. Well, we don't need God like they do. You don't think that you need God, but all the more than anyone You need God's help to even see the fact that you need God. Jesus came to a bunch of people that uh, didn't even know that they were sick and needed a physician. He was there to save them. They didn't know they needed saving. Some of you might be in that position today. You don't even think that you need to be saved. What do I need to be saved from? I got it pretty good. I'm doing pretty good. I am pretty good. If this is your attitude and you don't think that you need to be lowly before God and that you don't need his salvation, then that all the more should indicate to you that that's exactly what you do need. People are self-sufficient for all those reasons. Most fundamentally, of course, people are self-sufficient as a result of not wanting to obey God. You're not going to go ask for help brazenly from someone that you're about to defy, are you? You're not going to go and humble yourself before a God that you are directly rejecting and not wanting to obey. Now, people may not understand that all that they do is dependent on him either way. But they have to know that if they're going to live their way, they can't just go ask God for help in doing that. This is just not fitting. And so functionally what this does is they have to reject God as their ruler and they set themselves up as their own ruler. That's what it means to be haughty. You don't want God to rule over you. You are self-sufficient, self-reliant. And so we consider all these things together about being haughty. And uh, the words of Jesus make even more sense, don't they? How hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because he's going to be self-sufficient. He's going to be proud and haughty. He's not going to be lowly. He doesn't put himself in that position in his heart. He doesn't make himself poor in spirit. He's got everything. And yet God, it says here, knows such a person, not closely, but he knows them, how? From afar, from a distance. Sometimes when the Bible uses the word know, it's referring to a, an actual close personal relationship. And often that's what that is. But here, whatever relationship God has with this person, it is a relationship of distance. And it's not just like a long distance pen pal, you know, where you're eager to keep up with each other. This is one where God says, I know you, I know who you are, but you, I am not anywhere close to. I am far away from you. We're not friends. We're not 
on the same page. Everything you are is different from everything I am. And uh, you do not get to come near me. Until you humble yourself, you can't approach God. But if you do, God will have regard for you. One writer describes it this way. These two, the contrast of being lowly versus being haughty. He says, humility sees the universe as ordered, taking its rationale and meaning from God's supreme place in it as creator and sustainer. If pride, as the root of all evil, is the human step of self-assertion that places human beings outside of their proper place in creation, then humility is the acceptance of the distance that separates humankind from God and the awareness of the place designated for it in the scale of being under God's providence. Namely, if we're going to be humble, we just recognize where we're supposed to be before our Creator. And if we get that wrong, then we don't have any place before God. Instead of being full of haughtiness, arrogance, pride, we need to humble ourselves before God. When we're wrong, we acknowledge it. When we sin, we acknowledge it. We confess it. We deal with it. When we do something that violates God's word, we go before him and we confess that to him. And we don't try to make excuses and we don't try to live our own way and we don't try to cling on to our sin. I hope none of you would find themselves in a description of uh, haughtiness today. A lot of people think they have to promote themselves in order to be exalted they have to be self-promoting. They have to look out for themselves and tell people how great they are. And in fact, to get human attention, sometimes you do. If that's what your desire is, doesn't make it right. But we don't have to do this with God. If you are humble and lowly, God already sees you. You already have his attention. You don't have to tell him how great you are. You don't have to commend yourself to him. In fact, you act with humility before him. And that's the very thing that he is looking for most fundamentally. So do you long to praise God? And do you long for God to be glorified among the nations? What can you do to match David's heart here for God to be glorified? Well, you cultivate a heart that wants God more and more to be praised. You do this with all your heart. You tell of his greatness to other people. You pour into the people of God where God puts his wisdom on display in the church. And then, of course, pray that his kingdom might come and these kings of the earth will, in fact, do what he expects them to do one day. We'll look at verses 7 and 8 here for a moment. David's, the other part of his heart, this heart of him as a worshiper is confidence, confidence in the Lord to preserve him. He speaks of God's protection from trouble. Verse 7, though I walk in the midst of trouble, you will revive me. You will stretch forth your hand against the wrath of my enemies and your right hand will save me. This idea of reviving really uh, in this context seems best to be, um, as some translations have it, you preserve my life. You preserve my life. You save my life. You deliver me. You protect me from this kind of thing. David had enemies who were wrathful and angry against him and they're coming after him. And what does he do? Well, whatever else he did, and David in his day did things like run away, and in some cases he fought back and he strategized and all those things. Um, but he cried out to the Lord. He never neglected that. Whatever other measures you might take to avoid people coming after you and being unhappy with you, particularly for being faithful to Christ, whatever protection you may have, is crying out to the Lord first and foremost? Is, is asking his help and trusting him First, in what you look to for your safety and your protection. This is what David models for us. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, even if I'm right in the middle of all of that, some of us find ourselves in affliction now or difficulty now. Do you look to God as the one to bring you out of that? Are you being self-sufficient? We should trust God and ask him that he might be merciful, us to, deliver, merciful to us to deliver us from such circumstances. David is confident of God's ability, his protection, but also of his own character, which is faithful. God's faithfulness to the end. God's faithfulness to the end. The Lord will accomplish what concerns me. 
Uh, This is all about finishing the work that he started. The Lord will accomplish. The word means to bring something to an end. Sometimes it means you you finish something, you get rid of it. Like destroying something in the sense of making, that is no longer existing. It is over. But in this case, it has the meaning of bringing something all the way to the finish. Of getting across the finish line. Fulfilling or accomplishing something. Uh, You are doing it 100%. God does this. And uh, God will, he says, accomplish what concerns him. For for David, even perhaps, uh, in his case, the promise of his own descendants ruling on the throne and all that he had been promised about the kingdom. Um, For us, whatever God's purpose is for us, God will accomplish these things. God is not going to let that fall short. Sometimes we get worried because this isn't going to happen and what's going to be the outcome if this situation goes bad and what happens if I don't get this job and what happens if if I'm not able to, you know, get all this stuff done. The Lord will accomplish what concerns me. This should be our cry. He is going to finish his work and he's going to finish his work concerning us. Whatever we are involved in, in his plan, he is going to make that happen. So we can be confident that despite enemies or difficulties or circumstances that may surround us, he is going to bring about what is good for us. Because, he says, your loving kindness, O Lord, is everlasting. He never will leave us. And this is expressed beautifully in this last line. Do not forsake the works of your hands. The works of your hands. God has been involved in David's scenario and Israel's as well. He's gotten in there. He's gotten his hands dirty, so to speak. He's done the work and, and he has done the labor. And he says, don't do all that and then just abandon me. And of course, the expectation is he won't. He's confident of what God will do for him. And therefore, he asks him, look, keep me preserve us don't just leave alone the things that you have worked so hard for it would be strange if we just abandon things like that and sometimes we do for good reasons but God is not going to do that Philippians 1 6 Paul says being confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will what perfect it until the day of Christ if God has begun to work in you in the way of saving you He's going to bring that to the end. And he's going to accomplish his stated plan of conforming you to the image of Christ. We can be confident in God for this. And we should express our confidence to him. And not just be confident, but express our prayers to him and our requests in light of his confidence. This is what someone does who has been redeemed. This is what someone believes who is a true worshiper of God. I hope this is shaping your heart to be thankful to him and to want God to be glorified and to express your confidence in what he will do in light of what he's already done for you. I hope this is an encouragement to you in this time of thanksgiving so that you might praise God in light of these things. Let's pray together. God, thank you that you have given us this, uh, this encouraging psalm. Help us to look to you the same way that David did in his time of trouble and to praise you when you have answered us. We thank you for all that you've done for us, most of all, your son, Jesus Christ, coming to save us. We pray these things in his name. Amen.